Good evening. This is good. You guys kind of migrated to the middle. Yeah. Don't have any outliers out there. That's good. Well, yeah. Uh, in your Bibles, we're in First John, if you'll turn there. And tonight we'll be finishing up this letter from John to the church. Um, seems like we've been in it for a long time, but I don't think it's been that long since early this year. Um, but I think it's been really good. And uh, so tonight we'll, we'll finish up. We have two verses left in this, in this book, and uh, then we'll be moving on to something else on Wednesday nights. And just a reminder, um, the Wednesday night schedule, when, it, when we start up uh, Wednesday nights with Team Kid and all that again, which I don't know if we have a new start date yet. It was going to come soon, but just for those that are watching at home, just to keep paying attention to church emails and things like that, because the Wednesday night time will change whenever we get around to starting those things up, and we'll be starting at 6 o'clock on Wednesday nights instead of 6.30 uh, for our Bible study time. So I just wanted to get that out there before I forgot. So we'll, uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the uh, intro tonight, which tonight the intro is kind of long, but it's kind of a recap of what we've done as we get into finishing up this book, and um, I think that's essential to, to these last couple verses, and so we'll, we'll go over some things that we've looked at uh, throughout this letter, but let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for a time of singing. We thank you for a time to gather together as your children, and Lord, we um, are so grateful that you are our God and that you have given us your word, and Father, that as we study it uh, continually, whatever passage or verse or book of the Bible we may be in, uh, Lord, that we will know more and more about you, more and more about your Son, our Savior. We will come to better understanding all the time, better understanding of the truth, and that you will shore us up in that truth, uh, that we can recognize what is false and run from it and want nothing to do with it, Lord. I pray that we will cling to your word because your word is truth, Lord. And Lord, as we finish up this book tonight in 1 John and all the things that we've studied there, um, I pray that, they will, that we will walk away from this having been reassured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we go out and we talk to other people, and we share with other people our testimony, Lord, as we share the gospel with other people, that we can proclaim, as we just sang, Lord, um, how great thou art. You are an amazing God, and we want to praise you for it. Thank you, Lord. Teach us tonight through your word, through your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, I don't know about you, but studying through First John has been very enriching for me. I've been reminded and encouraged in biblical truths that I think can sometimes get masked or obscured by walking through life, by the hardships of life that we all can attest to. Um, it's hard to be a Christian in this world. And even our Lord told his disciples uh, that in the world they'll have tribulation, right? But to take heart because why? He has overcome the world. And that's what matters. And, and those are 
those are truths, those are promises that we can lean on as Christians, that we can trust in as Christians as we walk through this life that's very difficult. And I've been reminded that lies about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, false understandings about Him and what He's said and done, can and will bring about confusion and an unsettled view of personal salvation and lead to greater error in thinking moving forward. It can really unsettle a person, uh, even, even Christians, that if you start going off into error, it can really uh, it can shake things up, and we have to be careful of that. And it's a tragedy in the church today, as it was in John's day, a tragedy on two fronts, really, that, that unbelievers would be kept in unbelief by the deceptions of the world and false beliefs about Jesus, false sense of security in those false beliefs. It, it leaves unbelievers there, though they profess to be believers. And another, on another front, the tragedy of that is that believers, true believers, would be discouraged, confused, and robbed of their joy in Christ, and robbed of their assurance of salvation by the deception of false teaching. We don't want that. We don't want that. We should be able to be joyful as believers in, in the truth of God's Word. John wrote this letter in the region of Asia Minor to combat these things, right? These, the lies had already infiltrated the church, um, just as Paul had predicted that they would do. Um, as recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, um, if you want to start turning there, Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders in, in that area and warned them to pay careful attention to themselves and to the church because of this danger. And I want to read part of that section so that we can see the connection to what we're looking at tonight as well. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 32. He t- he's telling the elders this here. He's saying, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained with His own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I command you, I commend you to God and to the word of of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, Acts 20, verses 28 through 32. That's all right. I said the word Luke. That confused you. I said the word Luke. Yeah. At least you were paying attention. That's good. <laughs> So this was not a, a maybe that Paul was talking about, right? He, Paul said fierce wolves will come in. He knew this, and now they had. In, in John's day, he's writing these things. Those fierce wolves had already come in. He said men speaking twisted things would even arise from within the church. It's not just that these outsiders come in with false things. People from within would be speaking twisted things, 
And he paints this vivid picture, right, for us of, of what wolves would do to sheep if they had access to them. And we all know what, what would happen there, right? The wolves would, would seek and destroy the sheep, right? Tearing the sheep apart, ripping them to shreds to devour them without mercy. And we need to view these false teachers and their teachings as wolves. That same kind of activity in a spiritual sense. They will seek you out, chase you down, corner you, tear your understanding apart, rip your confidence and assurance to shreds, and devour your joy as Christians. That's what this, the threat of what is false coming in can do. And remember, John said these things are not from God. These are from the many antichrists who are already in the world, um, as we studied several weeks ago. We don't need to believe the movies that we watch or things we read outside of Scripture that tell us we, tell us we should be um, looking for demons under every rock or in, in every bad situation. Why? Because the war, our, our battles are over ideas. They're over doctrinal beliefs. The war is for the truth. And our weapons are not some ability to command Satan or his demons to stay away in the name of Jesus or to do this or that in the name of Jesus. We don't go around declaring and decreeing things as if we're shooting word bullets to defeat the enemy by saying the right things in faith. That's not a power or ability that we're given by God. Those, those are things people try to do in their flesh. There are false weapons of the flesh. And when we try those things or think those things have power, we're misled. Our weapon is more powerful than any of that stuff. Uh, more powerful than anyone, anything, any false teaching, any lie believed. And the weapon we're to use in the spiritual battles we face is the perfect, infallible, inerrant, and all-sufficient Word of God. Paul said we are to be armed with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We don't take our Bible and hit things with it. I mean, some people might do that, but it's not very effective. We open it. We study it to know it because the attacks that come, like I said, are over the truth. John's readers had the truth. They had believed the truth. He's, he's writing to Christians. At one time, they came to faith in Christ. They had received the truth. But in came the wolves that Paul had warned about, and they're using their most powerful weapon, which is true-sounding lies, to attack them. Right? Each time a lie is believed, a person is injured in battle. To not know or use the Word of God in our battles um, is like a soldier in battle against a guy swinging a sword and forgetting to take his own sword out and swing back. Right? You're, you're just standing there getting cut. Don't you have a weapon? Yeah. Why don't you use it? Meh. I don't really believe it has any power. Besides, I've never learned to use it. Certainly, I've never practiced with it. Again, our weapons are not of the flesh, though. We confront lies with the truth. We are attacked with lies, philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition. Those are things that Paul wrote about, all according to the elemental spirits of the world. And this is where our, our battle is fought, over what is 
true and what is not true. And we must learn, know, and think according to the knowledge of God and obey Him. And Paul said, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. Again, the idea there is knowledge. It is truth. Not swords, physical swords and those kinds of things, but all these arguments and lofty opinions. What did he say? Raised against the knowledge of God. That's what we're fighting against. And that is what John has been dealing with in this letter. The truth and lies. Lies that keep unbelievers in their unbelief and lies that rob the believer of joy and effectiveness in service to God. He said, don't believe every spirit. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that. Don't believe every spirit, but test them. And remember, the reference there is to what's being taught, not to a floating ghost-like figure that we might see, which we're not going to see. Okay, it's not about that. It's about words. It's about ideas. Okay, what are those things being taught? And he's referring to them as spirits, the teachings that are being brought to your mind. Are they from God? If not, there's only one other source, Satan. And through his messengers, that is, men teaching what is false. Those are Satan's messengers. And John called them antichrists. And the biggest lie that John confronted in this letter was the false teaching about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Gnostic heresy diminishes Christ. It takes away his humanity, which effectively makes his life and death and resurrection useless. Right? If, if Jesus wasn't a human, uh, then he did not do the things that the Bible said he did. He couldn't. He couldn't accomplish what he needed to accomplish. And John said that these people make God a liar, those who, who deny Christ. Those teaching and believing this heresy were marked by their lack of love for the brethren and, and several other things. As, as we went through this whole letter, we had over and over again John saying, here's the truth, here's a lie, here's what a believer looks like, here's what an unbeliever looks like. And they're marked by their lack of love for the brethren, unbelievers, by their, no matter what they profess, they, they, they may say they are, but they lack love for the brethren. And they're known by their continuation in unrepentant sin while claiming to be of God, by their spiritual condition being that of remaining in darkness and, and not in the light, by their lack of discernment and believing every spirit. They just believe everything and anything. They don't check it with Scripture. And by their pride and lust for what is worldly, they're void of the love of God. They, they're known as practicing lawlessness. They keep on sinning. They lie in the power of the evil one. They are not born of God. They have no advocate for their sins and remain in darkness. They believe the lies from the world because they are of the world and of Satan. They recognize those things. That's who they are. By their rejection of the truth of the deity and humanity of Jesus, they're known. By not believing God's testimony concerning His beloved Son, as we've seen in recent weeks. 
They deny the Father. They deny the Son. They are under eternal condemnation. All while saying that they are of God. And John has been teaching and repeating biblical truths so that those Christians can know that they truly have eternal life and can tell the difference between those who say they're Christians and those who truly are Christians. He wanted us, his readers, and by extension us, to be able to know the difference, to be able to see the difference. He describes Christians as having confidence in God, as being children of God, as loving the brethren, abiding in the truth, having the love of God abiding in them, having the word of God abiding in them, having an advocate when they stumble in sin, as having their sins forgiven, as having overcome the evil one, as being strong in the Lord, as practicing righteousness. They do not keep on sinning in a habitual, unrepentant fashion, as receiving whatever they ask for in accordance with the will of God. These are Christians. As having the Spirit of God within them, as having the Father and the Son, as not having to shrink back when Jesus comes, and not having to fear condemnation. They have been born of God. They have the protection of Jesus Christ, and Satan cannot touch them, as we saw last week. And as having eternal life in the Son. There's a huge difference. Where John started his letter with the proclamation of the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, he ends his letter with the same proclamation. Let's look at verse 20 in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So when, when John says, we here, he's referring to those who have believed the testimony of God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. We, we meaning, from John's perspective, me and you, okay? If you believe, he's talking about Christians. He says, we know. Again, he continues with this way of thinking that this is a settled truth. It's a settled doctrine. We know. It's not up in the air. It's not confusing. Jesus Christ, the one and only begotten Son of God, has come, and He means in the flesh. So He started the letter that way. He's ending the letter that way as with a reminder. He has come in the flesh. And that's what He means by saying He has come. To live as a man among men on the earth. Again, this is a direct strike at the lie that has penetrated the church. Those people that do not confess that Christ has come in the flesh. It's a, it's a big problem. He's writing to address that, among other things. Okay, the, uh, Those people that do not confess that Christ has come are, he says, are antichrists. They are not from God. This is not about, again, this is not about saying the words, Jesus has come in the flesh. Anyone can say those words. This is about believing that he has come in the flesh, believing every word of what the Bible says about Jesus coming in the flesh. And we Christians believe this to be true. We, we rely on this truth. If it were to be untrue, we would still be under the wrath and condemnation of God. 
without hope in the world. Our sins would not and could not be forgiven. And not only do we know He has come, but John says we know He has given us understanding. This is a very important phrase for us to grasp. And it's, it's tied to the doctrine of regenera- regeneration. Without Christ giving us understanding, we would have none. And the truth of the mystery of Christ would still be hidden. It would still be hidden to us. And how do we know this is true and, and, and what John is probably referring to? Well, from several scriptures, but in looking at a particular text, we can hear this from Jesus in, in praise to the Father for doing this according to His own will. In Luke 10, uh, verses 21 and 22, he's talking about Jesus here. In that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's, that's a pretty amazing statement there. You know, Jesus is limiting the knowledge of Himself and of God to, to them. <laughs> they know. They know each other. No one else does, unless. He says, accept the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. This is all about the sovereignty of God. So how does this verse apply to the doctrine of regeneration? Meaning, the teaching that people are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins and must be made alive, regenerated by God to have eternal life. How does that verse apply to that doctrine? What do you think? Well, I think we could see that it applies in that no one is or can be regenerate unless the Son chooses to reveal Himself. This is what John means when he writes that Jesus has given us understanding. If you are a Christian, it is because God sovereignly willed and determined that He would open your eyes by making you alive and revealing Himself to you. That's amazing. In Romans 3, 10 and 11, makes clear, as it is written, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. That's everyone. It's, it's all men and women. All men and women are evil, and not one of them are able to know God, understand God, understand His holiness, and worse, they're not interested in seeking for God. They don't do it. It's, that's a very clear passage. No one seeks for God. And all of this is due to sin and man's rebellion against God. But once God gives understanding, though, He opens the spiritual eyes of the sinner. 
I think it was last week or recently that we, we looked at John 6.37, and, and I think it was in the Q&A session afterward. And we looked at this where Jesus made this same kind of statement about the sovereignty of God over man. And when he said in John 6.37, all that the Father gives, me, gives to me will come to me. Again, we see the sovereignty of God there, that God gives some to him. And there's no, hopefully they'll come or maybe they'll come. He says, they will come to me. And you can hear in these verses that, that God's own working in the life of a sinner is what is needed. The thoughts and ideas and searching of man is not a factor. It's just not a factor without God's intervention. That's what it means to be spiritually dead and lost. And what is it, John writes, is the understanding that Jesus gives? In our verse 20 there, what is the understanding that Jesus gives? What do you see there? Yes, so that, emphasis there, so that we may know Him who is true. He gives understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Again, we would not and could not know Him who is true, Jesus, without the supernatural giving of understanding from God. It's, it's amazing that, that He comes to give that understanding. And He does so and opens eyes. Who is Him who is true? That, that's Jesus Christ. John identified Him who is true when he also said in verse 20, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He made that clear. That is Him who is true. He is true, and He is truth. There's no room given for someone else to be true or some other truth. This is exclusively reserved for Jesus Christ. John didn't say they were given understanding about they who are true or about which groups are true or which gods are true, which versions of Christianity are true. No, just understanding about Him who is true. Very exclusive. What is the pro progression there? We, we have no understanding, so the Son of God came in the flesh and sovereignly gives understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And praise God for that. Every believer should be praising God that He has graciously given us understanding as wretched as sinners as we are. What a gracious God. What next? John continues with another repeated truth from previous portions of this letter. He says, And we are in Him who is true. We are born of God. We are in Christ through repentance and faith. We have been baptized into Christ or immersed into Him by faith. And Galatians 3, 26 through 28 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And, and this is a, a text explicitly referring to salvation as being 
for everyone. Meaning, God saves people out of any and every people group. Uh, from, from anywhere in the world, from any culture, any language, both men and women. This isn't universalism, it's just that God saves people whom He chooses to save from wherever in the world. There's no, no skin color or gender of a person, male or female, that is excluded from salvation. This is not about taking someone out of financial poverty, this, that verse in Galatians. It's not about taking someone out of financial poverty into riches or from physical slavery to freedom or elevating one group over the next. This is a text that clearly puts everyone who's saved into Christ, into His kingdom. We are all co-heirs with Christ. No one's salvation is better or stronger than another's. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, those who believe. And it is Him who is true. And John is describing his, his readers as those people that he's writing to, as those who are already in Christ. He wants them, he's assuring them, if, if all of these things that he's written, you are in Christ. It's done because of the understanding given to them unto salvation. And of course, this is to be, as is his pattern in this letter, and what he's had his readers doing and, and us doing is to be contrasted with those who are not in him. There's a big difference. He's, he lays this out about those who are in him, and in our mind there should be that the opposite is that they are not in him. Those who, who are not uh, in Christ are not benefiting from his work and from the fact that he came in the flesh. Then we see John's final words of verse 20, and they're very strong. These are words undeniably a positive affirmation of the man Jesus Christ as being God himself. And he says, he is the true God and eternal life. And if suggesting that eternal life was found in Jesus wasn't hard enough for some people to swallow, John's words here make Jesus out to be God. And many people have a problem with that. And that was a big problem that John was addressing. There are people who can read Scripture and, and all the places where we see Jesus described as God and where Jesus claims to be God, and yet they can still find some way to deny His deity. Right? They can, they'll do all kinds of verbal gymnastics to twist the words around to suggest that they mean something else. That doesn't mean Jesus is God. Right, and they got their, all, all their reasons why. They, they, they don't want Jesus as God. You absolutely cannot do that here. These verbal or word gymnastics, you can't do that here and maintain a straight face. John said, he is the true God. We know he's talking about Jesus because he's already identified the Son of God as the subject of discussion. He even used his name. To be clear, Jesus Christ. You see, for someone to read the Scriptures and come to some other conclusion is proof that they are not born of God. First John 2.23, if you can remember back that far, he said, no one who denies the Son has the Father. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You cannot deny Christ, any aspect of Christ, and have the Father or the Son. It's a rejection. We covered, all, we covered this in earlier lessons, that, that John makes it very clear that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the eternally existent God, the second person of the Trinity. And Colossians 2.9 says, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is Jesus Christ. Only the unregenerate mind could deny this biblical truth. And they had been doing just that. So John wrote this to remind and encourage those who were truly regenerate children of God who possess eternal salvation. He wanted to encourage them. Because as he, he finishes by saying, He is the true God and what? And eternal life. It's not just left at He is the true God. There's a promise that comes with that. There's the promise of God associated with Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. It's in the Son. And in his gospel, John wrote about Jesus making this statement in his high priestly prayer to the Father. And, and notice that we are back to the subject of knowledge here, the truth, right? Eternal life comes from knowing the truth. But in that high priestly prayer uh, recorded in John 17, 3, Jesus is praying, and among other things, he says, and this is eternal life. He's going to tell you what it is. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. And again, to know, that is knowledge, that is understanding. And where does that come from? From, from Him who gives it, Jesus Christ. And there's something I want us to understand as well, since it, it came up in these passages. In our first John text tonight, John, referring to Jesus, says, He is the true God. But in John 17 passage we just looked at, um, we see Jesus referring to the Father as the only true God. And earlier in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, um, John wrote, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. In other words, no one has ever seen God the Father except for one. Who is the one who has seen the Father? The only God. Who's the only God? The one who sits at the Father's side. Who sits at the Father's side? Jesus Christ. He is the one who has seen him and makes him known. So we notice that there's a sharing of this title between the Father and the Son. It gives, it's given to both of them by John's writing alone. Again, all this makes clear that Jesus is God and has the title of God as well. And as we wrap things up here, I want to draw your attention back to John's stated reason for writing this letter. In, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wrote so that God's people would not be deceived by lies and so that they would know that they have eternal life. And we've gone over this multiple times. But there's another reason I believe he wrote this letter or at least another effect of Christians hearing this and believing these words from John. And that reason is so that we, the people of God, would not fall into idolatry. 
Okay, the very last verse of this letter mentions this. And it almost seems to be, it almost seems like it's out of place. But it's not. Um, like, I mean, when do we remember him saying something about idols? He didn't really focus on idols a bunch. But like all of a sudden he throws this in there in, in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Those are the very last words of this letter. That's how he ends it. Keep yourselves from idols. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word idol? False god? What else? Recreation? Okay. Merchandise? Okay. What about statues? You think of statues or figures of stone or wood, metal, who knows, maybe an altar, those kinds of things. What, a, what, what that you can't see? Mountains. Mountains that you can't see? Hmm, okay. <laughs> what about career or, or notoriety? Could those be idols? Or the, the praise of other people? Money, success, nature, pornography, rest and relaxation, food, anything, clothes, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, alcohol, drugs, media, the list goes on and on. And anything is the word, really. Anything that you put above God. Anything you put in the place that God is in. Sleep, yeah. Yeah. For sure. And notice that many of those things indeed are gifts from God. Rest, husbands, wives. These aren't, these aren't bad things in and of themselves. But what do we do? We put them in place of God. We, we devote ourselves to this thing, whatever it is, or this person. And ultimately... I think if we think about it, we can relate it all back to, or it can all be traced back to, self-worship. Right? This, this thing that I am putting all my attention on, or putting in the place of God, holding in a place above God, ultimately is for myself. In addition to some of the worldly things that we've mentioned here, there's, there's another thing that people put in place of God that is, that is a God that makes them feel better about themselves. A God that does not really mind the way I'm living outside of obedience to Him. The problem is that that is not God, and therefore it's an idol, a false God. And one commentator said this, there's, there's another form of idolatry prevalent today. Its growth is fostered by cultures that continue to drift away from sound biblical teaching, just as the Apostle Paul warned us. Quote, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, in 2 Timothy 4, 3. In these pluralistic liberal times, many cultures have, to a large degree, redefined God. We have forsaken the God revealed to us in Scripture and have recast Him to comply with our own inclinations and desires. A kinder and gentler God who is infinitely more tolerable than the one Revealed in Scripture. 
one who is less demanding and less judgmental and who will tolerate many lifestyles without placing guilt on anyone's shoulders. As this idolatry is propagated by churches around the world, many congregants believe they are worshiping the one true God. However, these made-over gods are created by man, and to worship them is to worship idols. If we somehow change God or ignore a part of what God has said and believe Him, only if I can take those parts away, I've made a God of my own liking. That is not the true God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word, and that's how He's to be worshipped, and that's how He's to be believed. It's idolatry. And I think this, this explanation really gets to what John is writing and warning about. In all that he said, in all the proofs of true and false Christians, light and darkness, righteousness and lawlessness, etc., we've seen that to not truly know and understand God is to be separate from Him. All the things, the lies and such that John talked about are from people claiming to worship the true God. These are not atheists or people saying, I don't believe in God, I have nothing to do with God. They're people who claim God in some way. They even claim Christ in some way, but they've changed it. They've rejected the message of and about Jesus from Scripture for something else. That something else allows them to live how they want to live and still claim association with God. They are worshiping idols. Again, what is an idol? Jeannie hit the nail on the head. It's anything we put in place in our hearts and minds higher than God. Where God should occupy, we remove Him and we put something else there. It's not just some rock or a chunk of wood or an object that you go and kneel before and pray to, though it is those things, but it's more. And Paul says that, that coveting what you do not have is idolatry and is to be put to death. In Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And that list we came up with earlier, almost all those things involve coveting what does not belong to us or what we're not permitted to have or to do, and that is idolatry. In this last verse, John is telling them to keep themselves or guard themselves against worship of idols. He's not just saying, don't be around them, right? don't, don't walk past one. He's saying not to worship them. Keep yourselves, guard yourselves from worshiping idols. How can we do that? By knowing the one true God, right? the Lord Jesus Christ. He's revealed Himself to us in the Scriptures. We don't, we don't have to be confused. If we know Him, we know His truth, and we can recognize false gods. We can recognize when I've put, when I've put something else in place of God. I've, I've devoted myself to something above God. And we can recognize then that when we are drifting into false worship, we may not recognize it right away. Maybe a brother or sister will point something out to us, and, and it'll click with us that we are, we're devoting ourselves to something other than God. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things in life. It doesn't mean that we, we don't enjoy the many gifts and blessings God has given us. We just can't replace Him with those things. He gave those things to us for enjoyment, and we can sometimes easily, sometimes quickly, turn them into idols. So we have to guard ourselves against that, and we should help one another if we see somebody 
putting something in a place of being an idol in their life. And it will be a lifelong fight, right? A lifelong battle. And again, it's a battle over the truth, a battle for the hearts and minds of people. And that is why John says you must be on your guard. So you and I should be constantly thanking God for revealing truth to us, for giving us understanding when we would not have it otherwise. We would not seek it out. He sought us out, and He gave us understanding. And we should thank Him for showing us mercy and for saving us and for keeping us and for giving us assurance because of the person work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what John is wanting to encourage the people in. He wrote all these things so that they would know that they have eternal life, and it's in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we have for tonight. That's the end of 1 John. Um, so I've enjoyed going through that, that book with you guys. Um, so we'll come back next week, and I'm thinking we're going to be in Colossians next week. So we'll look forward to that. And so if you want to stick around after, we're, after I pray here, if you want to stick around for a Q&A, then we'll have time to, to have questions and answers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your gracious and merciful kindness towards us, Lord, who are rebels against you, wretched sinners, Lord, yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you came, you, you came in the flesh, in the person of the Son. Father, you opened blind eyes. You gave understanding where there was none. You, you gave life where there was death. And you gave life eternal. We thank you, Father, for the perfection of your plan of redemption for your people. I pray, Father, that we will each day be on guard, that we would be putting to death the idols in our lives. We really don't see much these days of worshiping of rocks and sticks and things like that. There are, that still happens, and even in our area, Lord. But help us to remember that it's not, idolatry is not limited to those things, Lord. I pray that you would reveal in each of us those areas in our lives where we have made something else an idol, where you've put something as of more value than you, Lord. Convict us of that through your spirit, Lord. Help us and empower us to, to kill that sin in our lives. And that we would rejoice in you, Father, that we would rightly enjoy the many good gifts you have given us but never replace you for those things. Thank you for the gift of faith and of salvation through Christ Jesus. May we may honor you and glorify you in what we do and say, in what we think, in what we believe. And we, we trust you, Lord, for every aspect of our lives. Thank you for the body of Christ for your people, that we can come together and we can encourage one another and be encouraged. You are an amazing and gracious God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.